Scripture lesson this morning, Exodus chapter 1, reading the first seven verses. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were seventy persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Father in heaven, illuminate unto us the paths of righteousness. By your word and spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning, we're beginning our journey in the book of Exodus, but we're going to do so by going back into Genesis. I mentioned last Sunday that there's a sense in which you never leave Genesis and that we return to it again. And so that's coming true, though perhaps sooner than expected. And the reason for doing so is to establish what is called the Exodus pattern that emerges at uh, several key points in Genesis, which, which helps us in our understanding of the book of Exodus and the Exodus themes that are subsequently seen in Scripture. And so this, this sermon's going to have a little bit of a different feel uh, than normal because of the way we're going to approach this. Now, the Exodus is a momentous event in the life of God's people and the redemptive and covenant stories being told. And so it's good for us to be thoroughly grounded in a theme that has its origins in Genesis. Now, the opening words of Exodus immediately connect us back to Genesis, particularly chapters 49 and 50, where we read about the blessings Jacob imparts upon his sons, then of Jacob's death, which is followed by Joseph's death at the end of chapter 50. Exodus basically picks up there, but then supplies some more information about other deaths that have taken place, but that Israel as a nation has prospered. And hopefully we'll consider some of the details here, uh, in some of the details in in greater detail uh, next week. But there are already some hints here of the Exodus pattern that's established in Genesis. Again, there's there's a sense in which our study this morning is going to be high altitude, Uh, Maybe even so much that instead of a helicopter view of things, we're going to get a satellite view of them. I considered using the analogy of a high-altitude balloon, but then remembered certain recent events. (laughs) Yet I trust that this approach will still have practical import for our faith that will help us to to see more clearly what we uh, need to do in our present circumstances, who we are called to be in the midst of them, and why we can continue to be encouraged during these tenuous times. And the observations that I'm going to make are by no means original with me and will require the reading and citation of multiple texts in Genesis. But, but I believe the endeavor beneficial, not only for the reasons already given, but also in helping us understand how to read the Bible with greater acumen, how to think more biblically. So where to start? Well, a case can be made that there's a form of an exodus uh, pattern in the story of Noah as God takes him out of the out of the world, out of the old world, and delivers him into a new one. And that's certainly true enough. But for our purposes today, we're going to begin with Abraham's departure from Ur, recounted in Genesis 11 and 12. 
The first part of Genesis uh, 11, it recounts the episode of the Tower of Babel. And then we're given the genealogy of Shem's descendants. And then we read the following. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. So what are some key details here about Terah's family? He has three sons, and what happens to one of them? He dies in Ur of the Chaldeans. Terah outlives Lot, Lot's father, Haran. Also, we're told that Abram and Nahor took wives. And what significant detail is given about Sarai? That she's barren. What's another way to say that? That her womb is dead. So for all intents and purposes, Ur is portrayed as a place of death. Then what do we read? Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So they set off for Canaan, but they don't make it, do they? No, they stop off in Haran, and then what happens there? Terah dies. A generation dies along the way to Canaan. Well, what does that foreshadow to a certain degree? Israel's exodus from Egypt and a generation dying in the wilderness. Then in chapter 12, Abram is called by Yahweh to go to Canaan and what details are given. So Abram went as the Lord told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your seed I will give this land. So built, uh, so he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. A couple of things to note. Abram departs with Sarai and Lot and all the possessions and people that they had gathered. What does that indicate? That Yahweh blessed Abram, that he prospered. And we hear some important names like Shechem and Bethel, which are significant locations later in Genesis. But what does Abram do? He builds altars. What does that mean? That he's establishing true worship in the land of Canaan. He calls on the name of Yahweh. Worship comes first. That takes the priority. It did then and it does now. Before there's any cultural transformation that can take place, there must be faithful worship of the true and living God. So Abram leaving Ur and Haran and making it to Canaan is the first exodus we encounter. And just as a bit of a geographical note, this exodus uh, directionally is from north to south. Yes, Ur was to the east, but there was a wilderness in the way And so the travel route to Canaan went to the north where Haran was and then you come from north to the south. Well, the next exodus comes later in the same chapter and in the next verse we're informed, now there was a famine in the land. 
So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. To go down to Egypt is to go south. And what caused this trip to Egypt? A famine. A disaster takes place. Does a famine causing God's people to go to Egypt sound familiar? Well, yes, of course it does. You remember our studies of Jacob, of, of Joseph's life and how the sons of Jacob and all of Israel end up in Egypt on account of the famine. This is hardly coincidental. And I realize we don't have time to go through all the details here, but recall that Abram tells Sarai to tell the Egyptian that she's his sister, which she technically was, a half-sister in our terminology, on account of the fact that she was beautiful in appearance and the Egyptians would see her and kill him. Now, a quick caveat that we have to keep in mind is that in the ancient world, the brother or brothers negotiated for the sister when it came to marriage. We see this take place in Genesis 24 in relation to Rebekah and to a certain degree in the incident with Dinah in Genesis 34. And while some scholars want to say that Abram demonstrates a lack of faith here, that he's just being a big chicken pants, he's, he's actually employing a measure of holy deception that's perfectly in keeping with tactics used by the faithful, by the church, in such times particularly in times of war. Now, granted, Abram's not at war with Egypt, but he's going into enemy territory. And what happens? When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So some key details to note here. What do the Egyptians do? They see and take. What does that remind us of? Well, Eve in the garden. That's not accidental. The Egyptians are taking what's forbidden to them. Also notice that there's no negotiation. They don't ask Abraham, they don't ask Abraham to court Sarai. They just, they just take her. Which tells us what kind of society it was and that Abraham's concerns were completely justified. And what we need to see taking place here is an attack on the bride. This is a significant theme we see in throughout Scripture. And where does it begin? Genesis 3.15, when the war is established between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The dragon, the devil, attacks the bride because he wants to destroy the seed of the woman. We must understand what's going on here theologically. The point isn't to psychologize the text and make judgments about Abram's actions, but to consider what's really at stake here. But then what else does the text tell us? That Abram prospered, and it's sevenfold. Sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. What happens next? But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. A plague comes upon Pharaoh and his house. That sounds very familiar. And we'll read something quite similar later in our study of Exodus. And what happens next is key. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say to me she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now what's Pharaoh doing here? He's blaming Abram for what he, Pharaoh, did. And this is what tyrants do. They blame the righteous. They blame the Christians. And don't side with Pharaoh as if he's so innocent because he's not, as if, as if he, had he known Sarai was Abram's wife, then he would have suddenly acted respectably. No, Pharaoh doesn't fear God. So why should there have been any expectation for him not to kill Abram and taken Sarai away? Don't kid yourself about how things operated in the ancient pagan world. Then listen to the last verse in the sequence. 
Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Pharaoh commands Abram to go, which will be echoed by the Pharaoh in Exodus. Now what does Abram depart with? His wife, obviously, but also more wealth. All of the riches acquired from the Egyptians. That also foreshadows what's going to be the experience of Israel when they depart from Egypt at the Exodus. Now, the next major exodus is a little bit different. and has to do with Lot's departure from Sodom and Gomorrah. But recall from chapter 13 that Abram and Lot go their separate ways. And Lot chooses the land that's described in this fashion. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the Garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zor. So this was before, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. So where does Lot go? To the valley that's Garden of Eden-like, that's Egypt-like. Compare that with what we read later in Genesis 47 when Jacob and his family settled in Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. In Genesis 19, we read about Lot's rescue from Sodom and Gomorrah. And what are some key details to keep in mind there? What does it take to get Lot out of the land, out of the city? An angel of the Lord leading him out, just like Israel out of Egypt. And as there was some hesitancy to depart, we get echoes of what, uh, we get echoes of that from Israel when they're in the wilderness thinking they'd be better off back in Egypt. And listen to verses uh, 17 and 19 of Genesis 19. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountain, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you've shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the mountain, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Now, the text explicitly says the mountain. What's that referring to? Well, the mountain where Abraham is, where the Lord, the angels, came and met with Abraham and even got his input about destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. Back in 1816, we read, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. Chapter 19, 27 and 28. And Abram went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So the angel is telling Lot to return to Abraham. When Abraham and Lot separated, Abraham was living on a mountain. Now at Hebron, Abraham is living on a mountain again. But Lot doesn't want to go there. He's governed by fear and not faith. He doesn't trust the word of the Lord. He's convinced that he can't make it there, even though the angels with him made the reverse trip the day before. Lot refuses to join himself with the community of faith. And so his exodus from Sodom results in a wilderness experience. He ends up on another mountain in a cave with his daughters, and their unbelief eventually leads to the begetting of the Moabites and the Ammonites. But consider again, where does Israel go after leaving Egypt? To the mountain, to Mount Sinai, to meet with Yahweh. So here's another exodus recorded for us with some variations on the theme, but instructive to Israel, especially if we understand that the first book of the Bible constituted wilderness sermons to Israel. So what's the next exodus we encounter? When Abraham journeys toward the Negev, which is south, to Gerar in Genesis 20, and encounters the king Abimelech. 
And why did Abraham need to move? Well, because the Eden-like valley has become a burning sulfur pit. And who wants to live next to that stench? So disaster struck. Now here we need to put a few important clues or pieces of the puzzle together. Key question number one that needs to be answered. Where was Gerar located? In the territory of the Philistines. Question two. From whom are the Philistines descended? And knowing the answer to this question is vitally important because it unlocks so much later of what takes place in Scripture. To answer this question, we have to go back to Genesis 10 and the table of nations listed there that come from the sons of Noah. Verse 6. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Verses 13 to 15. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lahabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. So the Philistines are descendants from Egypt. They're related... And so symbolically and theologically, there's a sense in which dealing with Philistines means dealing with Egyptians. So what happens in Gerar with Abimelech? Abraham employs a similar tactic and tells him that Sarah is his sister. But then what do we read next? And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. The tyrant takes the bride, but then we read something different. And God visits Abimelech in a dream and basically tells him that he's dead meat if he does anything to Sarah. Abimelech pleads his innocence and maybe he had more integrity than Pharaoh, but notice what the text tells us. Then God said to him in his dream, Yes, I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart. It was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I do not let you touch her. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours." So Abraham gets to act as prophet as intercessor for Abimelech, which exonerates his holy deception, I think. And how does Abimelech address Abraham? He blames him. The tyrant blames the righteous. And what defense does Abraham give for his actions? I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And Abraham was right. There was no negotiation for Sarah. Abimelech just took her. And then what happens? Abraham gets wealthier. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. But then there's a new wrinkle to the progression. Instead of telling Abraham to take everything and to go, to get out, we read this. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver as a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So Abraham gets richer, and Abimelech's house had been hit by a plague after a fashion. But then Abraham interceded, they were healed. And where sometimes the tyrants are destroyed, here's an instance of the tyrant being converted because in chapter 1, after the birth of Isaac, Abraham and Abimelech enter into covenant with one another. And does this hint at Gentiles becoming part of the covenant people of God? Even at the mixed multitude that would depart from Egypt with Israel. 
The next Exodus we encounter in Genesis is, is in Genesis 26 with Isaac. And how does the chapter begin? Now, there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. So, disaster is struck. There's another famine. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your seed I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to your Abraham, your father. So Isaac does this and understand that this is not the same Abimelech that Abraham dealt with. Abimelech is a title similar to Pharaoh. Abimelech means my father is king. And some of you already know the story, what takes place. But even if you don't, I bet you can guess. Here's what happens. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say, My wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac, Isaac king, laughing with Rebekah, his wife. Well, this basically follows the pattern, but there's no apparent judgment on the people, and there's no mention of Rebekah being taken. And whatever Isaac's Isaacing with Rebekah entailed, it was a giveaway to Abimelech that they were married. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she's your wife. How then could you say she's my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might have easily lain with your wife, and you have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now what, is it? what does Abimelech do here? He plays the part of the tyrant and blames Isaac for what might have happened. And to put it bluntly, Abimelech saying, it would have been all your fault if someone had raped your wife. That's what this means and proves that Isaac's concerns were justified. See, this is satanic thinking. It's devilish logic and only further validates Isaac's actions. Then what do we read next? And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped, had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us for you are much mightier than we. Isaac is blessed. He increases in wealth and possessions. And what does Abimelech tell him to do? Go away. Get out. You're too mighty. What does that foreshadow? Israel's prosperity in Egypt. The Pharaoh's concern about the fruitfulness and mightiness of the people of Israel. And as a bit of an aside, what does the Philistines filling in the wells indicate? That they're a culture of death. In these areas, wells of water are a source of life, but instead they fill them with dust, with dirt, to which man returns in death. The wicked despise the prosperity of the righteous. There's some further conflict that takes place between Isaac's shepherds and the Philistines over wells. And eventually Abimelech comes and makes a covenant with Isaac, which you can read of, which you can read about for yourself. Well, one other significant exodus that takes place in Genesis is when Jacob leaves Mesopotamia to return to the promised land, as is recorded in Genesis 29 to 31. There's quite a bit that we can unpack in this story, but let's focus on some key points for our purposes today. First of all, we have to understand that Laban... Jacob's uncle and father of Rachel and Leah is a tyrant. Second, he basically enslaves and oppresses Jacob, tricks him into marrying Leah first, and though he also gave Rachel to Jacob, he requires more years of work for her. That's not treating someone like family. 
In chapter 31, Yahweh tells Jacob to return. And then Jacob has this conversation with Rachel and Leah. I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. And what did Yahweh do during this time of oppression? Prospered Jacob, increased his flocks and family. And then when Jacob tells Rachel and Leah that Yahweh instructed him to return to the land of his fathers, how do they respond? Listen to this, this is interesting. Is there any portion or inheritance left for us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So they're 100% on board with Jacob's plan and their testimony reveals that Laban the tyrant attacked the bride pictured in his daughters. Not in the same way, but consider how they've been treated. Jacob uses some deception when he takes his family and possessions and flees because he waits until Laban has gone on a uh, gone sheep shearing and is a few days journey away. We're also told that Rachel stole the household gods. More on this in a moment. So the text tells us that Jacob arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the mountain of Gilead. So Jacob is moving from north to south and is journeying toward a mountain. When Laban found out after three days, he pursues after Jacob for seven days to the mountain. What does that foreshadow? Pharaoh and his chariot army pursuing Israel at the Exodus. Then we're told that God visits Laban in a dream and is warned, reminding us of earlier episodes we've already considered. And when Laban meets with Jacob, what does he do? Well, he gives this big speech in front of everyone, blames Jacob, talks about how he didn't let him kiss his daughters goodbye or hug all his grandkids and didn't allow him to throw this big going away party because he's such a loving and generous fellow. You know, just as you shouldn't believe the song and dance of the other tyrants, don't be fooled into believing Laban either. And this is a fairly tense moment, but then Jacob says something that immediately increases the suspense in the text. Anyone with whom you find your God shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have yours, what I have of yours, and take it. Now, why Jacob sets forth capital punishment for the theft of Laban's gods isn't clear, perhaps for rhetorical effect, since he's so sure of his innocence. Jacob emphasizes that he doesn't have anything that belongs to Laban, much less his gods. But immediately the suspension and tension rises in the text because Jacob didn't know that Rachel had stolen them. Jacob's favored wife is the thief. But only Rachel and you as the reader know that. And appreciate how masterfully crafted the story is here. Even how funny it is to a degree. Laban goes into Jacob's tent first, clearly because he's sure he's guilty. Then he goes into Leah's tent. And then the tents of Zilpah and Bilhah, still nothing. The tension is mounting. You know, the music of the soundtrack adds to the suspense. Then at last, Laban comes into Rachel's tent. And the narrator tells you what Rachel did. She hid these little gods in her camel saddle and sat on them. Now that's funny, but it gets even better. Laban felt all about the tent. The verb here is the same one used of Jacob's feeling, uh, of Isaac feeling Jacob's hairiness back in chapter 27. You know, tents weren't well lit. So what's being portrayed here is, is just kind of Laban groping around in relative darkness trying to find his idols. Laban's in the dark physically and spiritually. Similarly blind as was Isaac later in life. 
So you've got Laban rooting through all of Rachel's stuff for these teraphim, and Rachel's sitting on them in her saddle, and then in what is one of the greatest lines in Scripture ever to be delivered with a straight face. Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. Now, Rachel's claim is that she's menstruating, having her period, and needs to remain seated. So Rachel deceives the serpent in her tent. Again, note the humor of the text, particularly toward these little gods. Not only is Rachel sitting on them, but Laban has to go searching for them, groping around in the dark. But then Rachel's claims give you the impression that she's menstruating on them, which basically means they're defiled, they're unclean. Now, it could also be that she's telling the truth here, but what's the implications? Uh, what's the implication? Laban's gods are humiliated. What are the ten plagues that lead up to Israel's exodus from Egypt? The humiliation of Egyptians' gods. And once again, Yahweh protects his people, his bride. He fights for his people after a fashion and delivers them. And again, the, the pattern of, of the exodus emerges again and again. Uh, Israel coming out of Babylonian captivity, out of Mesopotamia, has echoes of all these elements when we consider what we read in Daniel 5, and then in the book of Esther and of Cyrus, sending Israel back and providing the wealth of the nations to rebuild the temple. One last Exodus example that's worth noting is found in 1 Samuel 4 and 5, when Israel is oppressed by the Philistines. Again, who are they descendants of? The Egyptians. And what happens in this story? Does Israel go into captivity? No, God goes into captivity himself, represented by the capturing of the Ark of the Covenant. In other words, someone else suffers for Israel, which, of course, points us forward to Christ. And when Jesus meets with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, what do the three of them talk about according to Luke's gospel? Jesus' exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So God goes into Philistia, and you remember what happens. They place the ark in the temple of Dagon, the Philistine god, and the next day the statue of Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of Yahweh. And when gods topple over, what do you do? Well, of course, you have to put them back up. So they set him up, but when the Philistines come back in the next day, Dagon has lost his head and hands. So Yahweh defeats, utterly humiliates the Philistines' God. Then what happens? Well, basically, a, pray, a, a plague breaks out in Ashdod. And so the ark is carted off to another Philistine city. But then they're plagued as well as is the next, all of which is really quite funny when you stop and think about it, until finally the Philistine lords send the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. But they don't send it back by itself, but accompanied by rats and tumors made of gold. In other words, God plundered the Philistines, and he makes an exodus from Philistia and returns to the promised land richer. That's the Exodus pattern. And we see it again and again. And we see it in the Exodus Christ accomplished through his death and resurrection and the plundering of the nations that's been taking place ever since as men, women, and children come into covenant with Jesus Christ, the Lord and King. Now, I realize there's quite a bit of territory to cover in one fell swoop. And while there have been some points of application along the way, what are a few things that we can consider in closing? First, don't be surprised by oppression from tyrants which might be stating the obvious. But don't be surprised that they blame Christians for the ills of society. 
I think, I think, I think we, we, we've seen this on display in our society for a while now. Even as persecution against Christians on a number of fronts has increased, whether regarding our opposition to abortion or the feminist, homosexual, and trans movements, or even the founding of our country, uh, to name a few. These groups do blame us. They will blame us, as will those in the civil magistrate who hold to these demonic ideologies. Even more, don't be surprised on, say, an interpersonal level. If you, as someone who is seeking to be righteous, who is seeking to be obedient to God's word, gets blamed by someone else who is in sin. Somehow they'll try to turn the tables on you if you call them to account for their sin. Somehow it will be your fault. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've experienced it firsthand. So don't be surprised if and when this happens because it's a pattern we see in Scripture and even in the experience of Jesus himself. Second, let's be reminded of the importance of protecting the seed of the woman, of protecting our covenant children against the assaults of the seed of the serpent. Of course, one of the primary ways is through a Christian education. We should recognize that the serpent is always waging war on the bride and seeks to raise up his own seed through her. Consider that the time and energy and resources that we invest in our children, in their education, in their growing up with a thoroughly Christian education and helping others do the same, isn't just preparing our children to engage in the battle, which it is, but is to be engaged in a measure of the warfare itself. It's one of the reasons it's often so difficult and challenging and exasperating and frustrating and discouraging and sometimes depressing. But it is warfare engaged in by faith as all of our life in Christ is to be lived. It's a battle that takes place on the front lines on a daily basis. It's the conflict in the trenches of the daily routine of training and discipline. So don't lose heart, but steadfastly continue to stand for the truth and instruct your children in the same. And then finally, if and when disaster strikes, let us not despair, but recognize that the Lord is still bringing about His kingdom purposes to pass, that His people ultimately will inherit the earth and that we can emerge the wealthier for it. If and when society collapses, the righteous, those who have their heads rightly screwed on and their biblical wits about them will have opportunity to lead because they'll be the ones living in reality, the reality of the world that God has made. And this doesn't mean there won't be suffering, nor does it mean that, well, that things won't be hard. But hopefully it can help us to properly temper our outlook on the present state of affairs in the world and direct our faith to the Christ to our king who, well, deceived the dragon on the cross and crushed his head. See, Jesus is the king of kings who still destroys tyrants or converts them for the sake of his promises to his people, his church, his beloved bride. He still fights for us. So let us give ourselves to an obedient faith and the continual pursuit of the righteousness that he commands in his word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we once again thank you for your word. We thank you for the marvelous way in which it is written and pray that you would continue to impress the truth upon it, uh, into uh, the truth of it upon our lives and in our hearts and may that bear fruit in our actions and in our speech to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord and King, in whose name we pray. Amen.